It is so good to see you this morning. We're so glad you uh, chose to join us here at Ebenezer, and if it's your first time here, we're especially glad to have you. And if you've been around campus here, if you've been here in any time, you've heard us mention our missions endeavors here at Ebenezer. If you've been out here in this little triangle area above the above the bridge, or we got a wall there with a with a world map with a bunch of little dots on it, and and those dots all have a name. One of those names is Chris Dover. Chris Chris is here with us today. He serves uh, in, he's based out of uh, Turkey. He'll tell you a little bit about that here in a minute, but they travel all over the world to do uh, ministry and missions. And so uh, welcome him to the stage this morning. As, uh... Good morning, Ebenezer. It has been so good to be here with you guys. Um, been here for the last few months, uh, enjoying time with family and friends and catching up with all of you. And so thankful for a church that supports me in prayer and supports me financially as well. But the first thing I think that's important is prayer. Some of you know, some of you don't. Some of you are new since I've been here last, and it's great to see new faces. But my, my team is, works using the arts to share the gospel with Muslims. We go to, we're based in Turkey, but we, we travel around to other Muslim countries as well as to countries where there are large groups of Muslim people. There's tons and tons of, of Muslims who have fled countries in the Middle East and have made their way into Germany and France and other places in Europe, and so we travel there as well and reach out to those people as well. The world is made up of all kinds of different people, but one of the most unreached people is the Muslim people. Different cultures, different backgrounds, different countries, different languages. But they all have one thing in common. They haven't heard. And so my team reaches out to them and using music and drama and dance and all kinds of different arts. We share with them. And using the arts opens up a window to the gospel in their hearts. Because if I just stood and preached at them... They would reject it because they've been told they should reject it. But sharing a piece of what I do, sharing a piece of who I am through the arts, creates a connection that causes people to, th to think and to listen and to want to connect. Prayer is so important. And I thank you so much for being part of that, praying for me and for my team as we travel. Just a few years ago, we were on, our, on a trip in Turkey, heading into a place called Tunjeli. In Tunjeli, there were no Christians. There was no church. As far as we knew, there had been no Christians there ever. As we got to the border of the province of Tunjeli, our bus was stopped. We were surrounded by police officers, some in uniforms, some plain clothes, and they all were yelling the same thing. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. And they, wanted, they had video cameras. They wanted to videotape themselves telling us, it's important that you know, if you do anything here without permission, we're going to arrest you. We're going to take everything that you have, and we're going to deport you. So, unfortunately, that's not rare. It happens. So we drive into the town, and... We start praying, and a few of the members of the team who were leading the tour at the time went and decided they would just try. They would ask for permission. 
So they went to the mayor, to his office, and they said, could we have permission to do a show here? And the mayor said, sure, no problem. Surprise. He said, but you have to go ask the governor. If the governor, governor is okay with it, I'm okay with it. So they go and they ask the governor. We're all back there praying, and those few people are there representing us. They go to the governor and they say, can we have permission to do this show? And he says, well, if the mayor's fine with it, I'm fine with it. So they come back with this piece of paper that says that we have permission from the governor, and they take it to the mayor, and the mayor stamps it and says, it's all good. So we enter the town thinking, uh-oh, there's nothing going to happen here. But prayer works. Because God is bigger than police officers. and God is bigger than the government. And God is in control. And because we prayed, because we asked God to open that door, he did. That night, we did a program there. And after the program, three guys came up to us and said, we really, really want to know more about this Jesus and who he is and what it is that he did. Breaks our heart to have to tell them who Jesus is. So we share the gospel with them again. Shared it in the show, but we shared it with them again. Told them more, answered their questions. Today, in Tunjali, because God opened the door, there are two congregations meeting in Tunjali. A people meeting just like this every Sunday, gathering together to worship and to go out into their community and share the gospel. And it's because of prayer. Prayer works. God is waiting to hear from us and meet that request. So I, I beg you, pray. Some of you have asked how to pray. Some of you have asked how to give. Out on the table out there, there's cards like this. On the back side, there's a thing about how to give. If you want to do that, that's great. If you don't, just pick one up and remember to pray. Put it somewhere you can see it. You can remember it. Pray for us. Out on the table, there's some candy. Some people were confused. They thought they were rocks. You can have some candy. There's some apple tea back there if you want to try it. I'll be back there after the service to answer questions, talk to you guys. I go back Tuesday, so pray for me that I have a good flight. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? I am so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're joining us online or you're in the room, welcome to Ebenezer and welcome home. My name is Jamie. I'm the lead pastor here. And I was excited to hear Chris's testimony earlier. Was that not awesome? And an awesome testimony to the power of prayer. And so I'm just going to mess my sermon up right now. Chris, would you mind coming back down to the front, stand right here in front of me? I'm going to ask uh, some of our leadership, our deacons, whoever's in the room, whoever feels led, to come around Chris and let's pray for him as he gets recommissioned to go back overseas. So come on right now. Uh, I don't care who it is. Come on. Just if you want to feel, if you feel led to pray, come and let's gather around Chris. See, we're blessed. When you think about the way the body of Christ works, when you yield yourself to the Lord, there's no end to what God can do in your life. And so let's, uh, the rest of you, would y'all mind standing back up one more time? And just as a sign of connection, just reach your hand forward toward, toward Chris, and let's pray over him. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we are honored and humbled that we get to be a part of what Chris is going to do. God, we pray that you would use him mightily. As he gets ready to go back overseas, would you protect him? Would you give him favor? God, would you continue to go before him and give him opportunity? 
Thank you, God, for the lives that have been touched through this ministry already. And we praise you for what you're going to do in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. Lord, touch him now. Anoint him. In the name of Jesus, we all say, and everyone said, amen. As you're sitting back down, get your device, get your Bible, and turn to the book of Colossians. Thank you, Chris, for letting us take a moment to pray over you. We're excited about what the days have ahead. Last few weeks, I've been able to share with you what I consider to be my personal core values. We started with week one, and I shared with you that we need to have a focus on Scripture so that we can know God. It's vital. It's important. This book is all-sufficient in knowing who, what God needs us to know about Him and how we can know Him through Jesus Christ. We need to focus on grace. We are stewards of grace so that we can make a difference. When we live in grace and grace embodies who we are, I believe it embodies what Jesus Christ is all about. We talked about how we need to focus on family so that we can leave a legacy. God has instituted the family to be that means which faith can be passed to the next generation. And last week I talked about serving and I shared with you how serving, focusing on serving is a means by which we can fulfill our God-called purpose. And today I want to share the last one that's important to me, but to do so, I need to tell you a story, and I need to tell you on the front end, I'm probably going to mess this story up. Because it's been told, I've heard it so many different ways, but the point that I want to make today is vital to this last point of focus that I want to share a little over 20 years ago in the mid-90s, some of you were born, some of you weren't born. There was a boardroom in Atlanta that was sitting down to talk about a problem. And the problem involved chicken. Everybody loves chicken, right? Come on, let's give a shout out to our Chick-fil-A's. We, we, we've got some awesome Chick-fil-A's in our community here in Livonia and everywhere. I love me some chicken. And we in North Georgia have no shortage of chicken. But back in the 90s, the board at Chick-fil-A sat around a table talking about another chicken provider called Boston Market. And how they had come out with this initiative that they were going to expand and build so that by the turn of the century, the goal was they would top a billion dollars in sales. And this created a stir among the board as they began to try to reconcile, what do we do about this? Because up to that point, their business model wasn't to just go out and build a whole bunch of buildings and try to be in every town. As they sat there in the board meeting, though, from what I understand, Mr. Kathy, Mr. Truett Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, sat disengaged in the conversation as he listened to proposals and ideas about how they could get bigger. And at some point in the, in the meeting, Mr. Kathy started to bang his fist on the table. And as the silence entered the room, he said this. You all have been consumed with how to make Chick-fil-A bigger. How to grow. You're focusing on the wrong goal. You need to focus on how we can make our company better. If we are better, then our customers will demand we be bigger and growth will come naturally. Let me ask you a question. 
Does God want his church to be bigger? But what comes first? Does God want his church to be bigger or does he want his church to be better? He wants us to be better. But better at what? You see, sometimes we think about church growth and we focus on the wrong things. 2 Peter 3.9 is clear that God does not want anyone to perish. Well, if he doesn't want anyone to perish and there's thousands of people around our church that need to hear Jesus and need to be discipled, then where are they going to come? They're going to come here. They're going to go to our sister churches. So in other words, as we get better spiritually, we will get bigger. But the point is not to get bigger. I want you to consider a Bradford pear tree for a moment. I don't think there's anything that stinks worse on the face of this planet than a Bradford pear tree when it's blooming in about a month. And it's beautiful. These trees are so beautiful. And back about 20, 30 years ago, they became very popular as a way to landscape. But what did they find out? They're weak trees. They're a hybrid. Have you ever seen when a Bradford pear sprouts naturally and it grows up? It's got thorns on it. You don't want your kids climbing that tree. I mean, they're like this. They're about two or three inches long. It'll hurt you. But about five years into the life of a Bradford pear, it grows big and it grows beautiful and the blooms are gorgeous. But a good ice storm or a good windstorm splits that thing in half in a moment. Why? Because it grew too fast. It didn't grow like an oak tree that had time for those fibers to secure. That's why you build things out of oak. That's why we get to take pride in the state of Georgia down at St. Simon's in those areas for those live oaks that they used to build ships back in the 17 and 1800s. You couldn't destroy it. Why? Because it was oak. It wasn't Bradford pear. You wouldn't even want to fish in a Bradford pear uh, boat built out of a Bradford pear. One, because it stinks. You scare the fish away. I mean, but when you think about corporations, the, the goal is to be successful, bigger, richer, powerful, and influential, but it's not that way in the Christian life. What does it mean to get better in terms of being spiritual? Because for a Christian, what is our goal, our purpose, and our success? Well, I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it best. That the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, that was a catechism. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Psalm 145, verses 10 through 12, And all of your works shall give thanks to the Lord, to you, O Lord, and your godly ones will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. Why? To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts, and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we exist to make the name of God great. But do we? When people look at our lives and they look at what we stand for and what we exist for, Does it make the name of the Lord great? Does it glorify who it is? We have been called by God to reach this world for Jesus Christ. And we cannot do that on our own initiative. We need something beyond us. 
Whatever we do, whatever we need to do, we need to do it with excellence. Say excellence with me. I just want to make sure you, you're hearing the word. Excellence. I'm sorry. I think in movie. But Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, I can't get this image out of my head of Abraham Lincoln looking at him and saying, be excellent in everything you do. I just, it just I can't shake it. But the word excellence is rooted in Latin, and it means to come out of a silo, kind of. It means to come out of something with prominence. It means to stand in a place of superiority. When you go in your house, if I came into your house, I could tell immediately what's important to you by your trophy case. If you walk into my office, there's a few things that's now on display behind that desk. At the top is my family and pictures of my kids. Right below that is that big old thick book that I spent seven years doing in seminary. Right there below it with my degrees and my diplomas and some gifts. And of course, yes, to the left of my desk is Darth Vader and R2-D2. Those are things that I take pride in and those are things that I feel like I hopefully am doing with excellence. That's why I put them in that case. When you get an award, you get a ribbon, you get a trophy, you're proud of it. It represents an accomplishment. It represents excellence. But the truth is we can also excel in things that aren't good. We can be excellent in our sin and thereby we don't glorify God. This message today is about focusing on excellence so that we can give glory to the one to whom glory is due. So would you mind standing with me as we read a little paragraph out of the third chapter of the book of Colossians. And I want to start in verse number 12. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and he's addressing heresy. Not only did you have the Judaizers who were trying to thwart the simplicity of the gospel, trying to add to it, but you also had this mystical element that was going on. It was just false teaching. And so he's writing to exalt Jesus as the head of the church. The book of Ephesians is very similar, except the book of Ephesians focuses on the body of Christ, where Colossians, the letter to Colossians is focusing on the place of Christ at the head of the body of Christ, the church. And so into this chapter, he's compelling them to seek Christ where he's seated, to put our minds on the heavens, to live this new life. And he says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive others. I'm sorry, you cannot blot that verse out. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. And then here's the crescendo, the summary. He says, 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And God, as we yield our hearts to you, let your word speak to us and let us leave encouraged and different compared to the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So what I see in here, in this paragraph, are six different ways, six different means, six different aspects of way that we need to be excellent in order to glorify God, which is our purpose. And I want to start again in verse number 12. All right, so roll up your sleeves. We, we're going to cover, I know it made you nervous when it went from three points to six points. That's okay. These are, the, the, I believe when we look at these points, if we can take in what these six things are saying, we can, find, we can find our place in the purpose of God for our lives and do it with excellence. So I want you to look again at verse number 12. The very first part of this, so as those who have been chosen of God. In the Greek word order, it actually says, so put on. Those of you who have been chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. He starts with the imperative. You need to put on, and the next three verses talks about what we're going to put on, the clothes that we're going to put on. This is what needs to cover us, and whatever covers us is what the world sees of us. But folks, let me tell you something. The reason we can't excel in glorifying God, in this first point, excel in our character, is because we spend a whole lot of time questioning who we are. There are forces in this world that consistently come against you to try to convince you that you are not who you are. And sometimes we stand in that mirror and we're looking at the way we look and maybe our weight and where we are in life and what's happened to us and we allow Satan to convince us that we're nothing. But he used three phrases to describe who you are. Therefore, those of you who have been called out. First of all, he said you've been called out. Well, called out from what? Called out from this world. We are not of this world. This world is not our home. Remember, he started this paragraph by talking about set your mind on things where? Above, not down here. If we determined our, our, who we are based on what the world says, we would be in a heap of trouble. When you turn on the TV, the question that permeates everything in our culture today is, who am I? And too many people are living lies and that's the thing that Satan wants to do in your life. If he can get you to question who you are, then he can get what you do. If he can continually put doubt in your mind who you are, listen to those three descriptions. You're called out. You're holy. Why are you holy? Because he's holy. Jesus lives inside of me through the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit's first name is holy, what does that make me? Set apart, holy by the Holy Spirit of God who now dwells in me. And the third one is beloved. That's the perfect tense of agape. You have been perfectly loved. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. But if Satan can convince you of something you are not, if he can cause you to question your identity, then everything else unravels. Every aspect of my life, everything I speak, everything I do, unravels. There's three things. Guys, I want you to really get this. If you don't get anything else, get this. You have been called out. You 
have been made holy and you are loved. And the next time you stand in front of a mentor, question who you are, go back to those three things. That's what God says about you and me. And because of that, then, he gives these attributes that I want to dig into. In this first one, be excellent in our character. How do we do that? Well, the first one he mentions is compassion. He mentions compassion, which means to show sensitivity to those who are suffering or in need. It's used to describe Jesus in Matthew when he said he looked at the at the people, and they were like sheep without shepherd. He was moved in his bowels. Let me prove this to you. If you leave here today, and you're going 70 miles an hour down Highway 17, and a deer runs out in front of you, you're going to feel it in your gut. It'll scare you to death. You know that feeling. All of a sudden, all of this tension rises up, and you, I mean, you're all big-eyed, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's being moved in your bowels. When was the last time you looked at somebody struggling and you were moved in your bowels? When was the last time you saw somebody struggling and you were moved in your bowels? That's what he's calling us to do in our character. And then he talks about being kind. It manifests itself in sweet disposition. Now, I'm going to meddle, okay? I meddled in the first service. Can I meddle in this one? Thank you very much. Listen, when Jesus Christ changes your life, he also wants to work on your grumpiness. I've, over the years, I've, I've been in churches where, where, where I've observed people mistreat other Christians, claiming to be Christian, and somebody say, well, that's just the way she is. No, it's not. No, it's not. When Jesus Christ changes you, he changes your heart. Your, your history may explain how you are, but it doesn't excuse it when you've got someone powerful like Jesus who can pull you out of it. Now, does that mean we don't slip up? I know, we all have bad days. I'll honk at people too. But that does not justify mistreating people, and that's what he's talking about here. Humility, the fifth one here. Having a realistic view of oneself. In, in, the, in the Greek culture back then, this was seen as something bad. If you thought you were humble, if you considered yourself to have humility, you were looked down on. But what Paul is saying, no, you need to be looked up to. Be excellent in humility, thinking of others better than yourself, gentleness. Don't behave harshly or arrogantly or self-assertively, but considering other people. And then that last one, we love the last one, right? Patience. It's the quality of long-suffering and self-restraint. They should, these should sound familiar. Three of five of these are mentioned in Galatians 5. 23 through 23. I promise you, one of these days, I'm going to sing the song. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. These are things that should flow out of a changed character. So standing here today, and you and I looking at our life, my question to you is this. What does it look like to excel in our character? I think these five things right here are a good litmus test to determine whether or not our character is being excellent. So point one, be excellent in character. But then point two kind of flows out of point one. Be excellent in forgiveness. When you look at these things, being compassionate, kind, humble, and gentle, that means you're going to deal with people that you don't like. 
You're going to deal with people that get on your nerves. You're going to deal with people that offend you. But look at the way he says this. He gives you two commands here. He says, bearing with one another, which means to put up with somebody, and forgiving others, letting it go when you are offended. Jesus uses this same word of bearing with others when he was dealing with the disciples, and he says, how long should I put up with you? In 2 Timothy 4, 3, Paul uses it when he says that there will be men who will not endure or bear with sound teaching. But he's calling us to bear with other people, to bear with them when they mess up again, when they offend us again, when they do all kinds of things against us. He's calling us to bear with them and to forgive them. But he qualifies this one. Whatever complaint someone has against someone else. Very general, very broad. But wait a minute. You don't know what somebody else did to me. Can I give you some advice? Don't live in victimhood. Don't be defined. I'm talking about who you are. You are called out. You are holy and you're loved. But when you choose to live as a victim, you shackle yourself. Somebody did something to you 20 years ago. And I know it's hard. There are some things that would be hard to deal with in your life. Things that people have done against you or toward you that, that are tough and difficult. But the only person who hurts when you hold on to unforgiveness is you. And I think even today God may be calling some of us in this room to go, you know what, I need to do an inventory of the people I do life with because I'm holding some unforgiveness. And today's the day that I'm going to let the power of God reach into my heart and set me free by allowing me to forgive them. Now, does that mean the switch turns off? No. But you've got to make a conscious choice first to say, you know what, I'm going to forgive this person. Because if I don't, I'm the only one in the long run that's going to hurt from it. But think about this. Jesus, when he gave the Lord's Prayer, at the end of that prayer, there was a lot of things in there he could have commented on. But you know what he commented on? Forgiveness. He said in Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your Father will forgive you. But if you don't, He won't. Now, is that a formula? No, it's not a formula. Listen to this. F.F. Bruce said that not, not that human forgiveness is a work that earns divine forgiveness. That's not what he's implying. The initiative of forgiveness always lies with God. Because you and I don't have the energy, the power to be able to do it. But, he says, an unforgiving spirit is an effective barrier to the reception of forgiveness. In other words, if I can't forgive, am I really showing that I appreciate the forgiveness that God gave to me? I can watch the Passion movies as many times as I want to, and I can even weep when I see them drive the nails in his hands and his feet, but if I don't extend forgiveness to others, how can I really show that I appreciate the forgiveness that God's given to me? It's heavy, but we need, what would it look like? Listen, what would it look like in our gospel presentations if I was excellent in forgiving? Because if people see me forgiving, then when I tell them about a God who loves them and wants to forgive them, then God is able to set me free when I'm excellent in that. In Ephesians chapter 4, like I said, there's some parallel between Colossians and Ephesians. In chapter 4, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the recipe of reconciliation. I don't know about you. I don't like tension to be between me and someone else unless it's profitable. If it's moving me to be better or moving the other person to be better, that's good conflict. 
and it needs to happen. But when it just rests on there's an offense or there's a piece of unforgiveness, that's not good. God wants us to be at peace. Why? Because of the third point. We need to be excellent in love. We need to be excellent in love. Why? Because that is the perfect bond of unity. I could come in here next week and paint a beautiful picture of a vision for Ebenezer Church. I could give numbers and stats and time frames and all those different things, but vision is not, it's not what's going to unify us. You know what's going to unify us? Love. A commitment to put on. Remember, this all goes back to the imperative. Put on love. And love means doing what's best for the other person. Look with me at verse number 10. He says this, And having put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. God's plan for you and I is to look like Jesus, not be Jesus. There's only one Jesus. We'll never be Jesus. But he wants us to look like him. And this word love is the agape kind of love, that unconditional, unmerited love of God that he has for you and me. You and I could do things. Think about this. All those things up to this point, we could do. But if we don't do them with love, what do they matter? Isn't that the point of 1 Corinthians 13? That I could be a resounding gong. But if I don't do it with love, what does it profit? And that's the same thing that's going on here. If I'm going to be gentle towards somebody, I can be kind to people. But what's my goal? What's my What's my, what's my reason for doing that? My, my reason should be love because Jesus has called us to love one another and we need to prove our love for one another. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. And then that verse 35, he wrecks us. He says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You know what he just did? He gave the world the permission to judge us by how we treat each other. Have we done a good job? In history, has the church done a good job loving one another? I'm just being frank. Have we done a good job? Have we excelled in our love for one another? Because it's hard for an unbelieving world to believe in a loving Jesus when he looks at the examples and they're not loving one another. My question to you is this, what would it look like if we excelled in love for one another? That that was our driving focus was to make sure that we prove to one another and to this world that we love each other with the love of Jesus. Because following this, there's going to be four more imperatives. Don't y'all love this paragraph? Because the fourth point is this. If I'm being excellent in character, I'm excellent in forgiving, I'm excellent in love, it leads to being excellent in peace. P-E-A-C-E, peace. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, and you understand the storm that goes off in somebody when some stimulus comes along that sets off that anxiety, and it's like an earthquake going on inside, and it affects the mind where you can't Focus on what's going on around. But Jesus, we know Jesus has power over the elements to the point where he's on a boat and he says, hush, be still to the seas. And they stopped moving. And for you and me with that storm in our life, this actually literally says, let, 
Let peace be the arbitrator in our heart. Let peace have the final say. And sometimes I have to choose peace even though I may not feel peace. Y'all know what I'm saying, right? Sometimes I may not feel that God is in the room. That doesn't mean that God isn't in the room. I can't determine truth by what I feel. But when he says, let peace arbitrate, when he says, let peace arbitrate, let it rule, you know what it produces? It produces thankfulness. When you don't know what's going to happen in your life and everything is unraveling, when you choose to let the peace of the Lord rest in your life, then you can step back in humility and say, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Why is that important? Remember I mentioned a little while ago about, about, about being a victim? What about entitled people? Entitled people are not thankful people. You know why? Because they feel like they deserve what they get. And so when they get what they feel like they deserve, they're not running to the person who gave it to them and saying thank you because in their pride they were like, well, I deserved it anyway. When you and I lay that aspect down and realize that what we deserve is death, it's what we deserve. You and I as sinners deserve death and that anything we receive from above is a gift of God, then we can return that back to Him in thankfulness. When I live in peace, when and only when I live in peace, choosing peace, to be the arbitrator of my life, then I can press in and be unified with other people. Because just like forgiveness, if I extend forgiveness, I show forgiveness. When I show peace, then I'm laying down the walls that separate me between myself and others. And I can find this place of being absolutely thankful, grateful. And when I do that, I find the fifth one. I find excellence in worship. You see how all this flows from our character to forgiveness or the way I'm relating to other people and the motivation behind why I relate to other people to this last one where I'm now at peace in myself and others? Folks, when I get to that place, whether it's corporately together or in my home by myself, I can then pour out thankfulness from my heart to the Lord. It's not about, when, when you think about worship, it's not necessarily about what you sing though the words are important. It's not necessarily about the genre or the place. What it is, is it's about expressing the gratitude that you have in your heart. And what I have found is that the cure for being out of peace sometimes means I need to stop and count my blessings and focus on the things God has done, even though all this mess is going on. If I can focus on what God has done, the goodness of God and what He's done for me, then I can worship thankfully. When you read this verse again, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Remember, he's writing to them about heresy and how they have distorted Christ's image. So he points them to the word. When you read this parallel passage in Ephesians 4, he focuses on the spirit. The word and the spirit together operating in my life produces thankfulness. The power of the word connected with the power of the Spirit, reaching deep down into my soul, produces thankfulness. What would it look like if I excelled in thankfulness? What if I became an expert in being thankful? Complaining would diminish. Stress would diminish. Conflict would diminish. I think loneliness would diminish. 
Maybe I need to strive to live a life of thankfulness that's based on the word of God, dwelling inside of me, living inside of me, impacting me. Why? Because the last point, be excellent in everything. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You and I are representatives of the Lord. We are image bearers of the Lord. And when I see that every thread in my life connects back to making the name of the Lord great, then when I'm cooking that supper, I'm doing it for the name of the Lord. When I'm shopping in Walmart, I'm doing it in the name of the Lord. When I'm pumping gas, I'm doing it in the name of the Lord. Now, I know you think that's silly, don't you? But the reverse of that is true. The way I pump my gas, the way I treat the people around me could tell a different story. Because people are looking to you and to me to find hope. They're looking to us for hope, ladies and gentlemen. And when I live as a victim or I live entitled and I don't live trying to be excellent in glorifying God, it tells this world a different story about who he is. Harry Ironside said this, that holiness and happiness go hand in hand. Be excellent in everything. Because we either make God's name great or we diminish it. As Jeremiah wrote in 10.6, he said, There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 says this, For the rise, from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, my name, talking about the Lord, will be great among the nations, and in every place where incense is offered to my name or a grain offering, my name will be great. You and I are the conduit. We get to be not just like... Just like I talked about grace and, and how we are stewards of grace and we're, we're stewards of the love of God. We're stewards of the glory of God too. This world is lost without hope, without Jesus. And he's calling you and me to remember the three things that we're called out, that we're made holy, and we're loved. That's who we are. And out from that flows character. The commitment to unforgiveness, the commitment to love, the commitment to finding peace, the commitment to worship, the commitment to be excellent in, in everything. And it took me back to a story that you're very familiar with in Scripture, and I chose Matthew's reporting of this story, where he was in Bethany just days away from entering into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And a lady comes in with a box of perfume. And the reason I chose this aspect of the story is for this reason. Because as she goes and she takes this priceless piece of ointment, the disciples, again this is like just days before crucifixion, the disciples are looking at her and the Bible says they were indignant. They're going, oh my gosh, that's like, that's like somebody burning a million dollars. And they're standing there watching her as she breaks that and puts it on Jesus and anoints him. And they were like, oh my gosh. And, they, and they, they get self-righteous for a moment. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. Jesus said, why are you bothering her? For she has done a good deed for me. I think C.C. Winans expresses this best in her song. Where she says this, I've come to pour out my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster box. So don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears or dry them with my hair. 
Because you weren't there the night he found me. You didn't feel what I felt when he wrapped his love around me. Then she says this, you don't know the cost, not of this oil, not what's in my alabaster box. And my challenge to us today is the same. What's in your alabaster box? What is the best that you're bringing before the Lord? That we would be best in what we say, in what we think, in what we do. Because when I commit to excellence in everything, it will bring glory to God. When God is my utmost devotion and passion, it will bring glory to Him. So whatever your next step is today, I don't know what it is. Take that list home and go down through that and do a self-evaluation. God, I need to be better in this and this and this. Whatever it is, just know it's going to take God's power to make it happen. You can't do it on your own. And there's no use in trying. He sent His Spirit to live inside of us if we've accepted Jesus for the very reason to give us the power and the direction we need for holy living. So, What's your next step? For some of you today, it may be this. You're not right with the Lord. I've talked about these different focuses or foci the last five weeks, and you're saying, you know what, none of those resonate with me. Well, it could be that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that there's something missing in your soul, that you've drifted away from Him, that you don't even know Him. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, looked down on your need and came to this earth and lived a sinless life, and He died on the cross to pay your sin debt, to set you free from the death that you and I deserve. And he was raised again so that he could give you the gift of eternal life. And there's no reason that I can think of today that somebody should leave this room without wrestling with that question, have I met Jesus Christ? Have I believed in him and has he saved me? Because that's the most important question. Before you even deal with excellence, be excellent in your profession. Put your faith and trust in Christ today. If you've drifted away from him, repent of your sin and come back and ask him to restore you. If you're walking with the Lord, ask the question, how can I excel? Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the goodness that you give to us, but we're thankful for it. God, I hope they hear my heart today is that we find the freedom Freedom, not bondage. Committing to disciplines and committing to be excellent isn't about bondage. It's not taking away my rights. It's about getting into a place where I'm glorifying you. And in glorifying you, that's where I find true life. So, Lord, I pray you touch our people today. Lord, whatever their step is, whatever they need to do with this message today, God, you speak louder than any words I could have ever spoken. That you would shepherd their hearts, that you would encourage them with the Spirit to walk out of here and to engage a world that you have called us to reach. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.